Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is Andy Burnham, creator of the Megalithic Portal website. What started out as a small database of ancient sites in the late 1990s is now an extensive and detailed archaeological resource, lovingly sourced by those people, like Andy, who were interested in the myriad ancient stone circles, henges and other such structures that dot the landscape. The website was such a success that it led to the publication in 2018 of a book called The Old Stones, a lovingly detailed field guide to the megalithic sites of Britain and Ireland that was named Current Archaeology's Book of the Year for 2019. Whilst providing a comprehensive level of information about Neolithic and Bronze Age sites across the British Isles, it also includes articles that speculate about the phenomenology of these places, the people who built them, and what such sites might tell us about the cosmology, religion, magic, science and culture of those times. It's a really lovely book, and it was great to talk with Andy about what led to its genesis. Fascinating stuff all round. Enjoy! Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're very welcome. So we're here in this episode to talk about the book, The Old Stones, which is Current Archaeology's uh, book of the year for 2019. Congratulations. Yes, I can't believe it. It's amazing. But before the book itself, you set up a site, a website called The Megalithic Portal. To start off with, just tell us a little bit about your interest in archaeology and how the portal itself started? Well, yes, I started by visiting uh, megalithic sites in my childhood in Cornwall, really, and, and taking photos and, and such like. And then about 20 years ago, my, my background is, is as an electronics engineer. So I was pretty early onto the internet um, in 1998 and setting set up a little... Um, basic website with text and photos of megalithic sites you know and um before not too long people would um i'd get contact from people and they, they'd approach me to add their own photos and information so i did it by hand for a bit and then then i worked out a way with scripting to allow people to add their own comments and create their own pages and upload their own photos and that is the megalithic portal um, and it's uh, still going strong and it's, it's still central to what we do today yes hmm. and so I imagine at the time it was it was pretty unique in terms of people being able to access that kind of information yeah I mean it was pre-facebook and so yeah it was a predated a lot of the social media um, but we we still uh, people still um, come and visit us <laughs> against the uh, onslaught of Facebook, but yes, it's um, yes, it's uh, it's uh, it was quite a, a a unique unique thing. But um, yes, as I say, now other places to add photos. But what 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 you don't get don't get on the likes of Facebook is we we've got um, location information and links to maps and aerial views and even the the Google Street View, so you can you can drop down to see what they've uh, see from the roadside, which is always um, very illuminating. So yeah. Uh, and all linked geographically, really. Oh, that's brilliant. And when did you realise the potential that the website had as an archaeological resource? Well, almost immediately, because uh, we'd get people saying, I've seen 
you know, these particular things from uh, my uh, going up in an aeroplane or you know, various lumps in the ground and what, what do you think they are? And, and ever since then, we've been helping people identify what things are. And uh, often you can, you can work out um, what they've seen or you know, sometimes it's a, a, another spherical thing in a field but um yeah occasionally people discover new things and um yes it's it was clear from early on that it was a quite a unique resource mm. and so with the megalithic portal what was it that kind of inspired the idea to take that information and, and reproduce it as a as a book well for a long time i was quite resistant to the idea of doing a book purely because the website had come out as a, a reaction against certain you know books that have very limited you know like a couple of lines on each site and, and no photos hmm. um so you know with the, the vast amount of information we have as i say i wasn't keen for many years but i was persuaded by the amazing folks at watkins to um that it would be a a, a really good uh, and we're between the the between us we worked out a really uh, sort of unique concept for the book to make it um sort of the ultimate uh, resource for finding sites and an awful lot of work went into the layout and the design and and you know things like having the counties written down the side for for easy access to mm -hmm. things and so yes we've um i'm pretty pleased with the way it's come out and um yes it, it was a tricky but worthwhile exercise to go through and and work out all, all the best sites to include because mm, i was, was going to ask you i mean i as the editor of the book i'm I, I just wonder how you sort of where you start when you try and decide how to pick the the information that's going to go into the book considering considering there must be so much information on the on the website how did you know how where to start in terms of what you would put in the book yeah, not easy. Um, but as I say, from from the concept, it it was clear we wanted to make it a, a collaborative group effort. So what I did was uh, found enthusiasts from each part of the the UK and Ireland who know the sites well on the ground, and then I would start off with uh, information from the megalithic portal with because um, I we see how many photos people are uploading and how and votes people vote for photos and po we can see popularity of sites and and you know ratings and such like so what i did is i created a long list for each area like southwest southeast um, and Isle northern ireland southern ireland so from a long list in a, in a spreadsheet and then handed that over to local experts and then they went down the list of sites and sort of chose their own um you know what they thought were the, were the best sites for each location and it was that done that way so so we didn't make sure we didn't miss anything by having the sort of the the ultimate list of sites from the website and then it was a, um, a human um curation and then sort of myself overseeing it all and, and obviously fitting it all in yes hmm. and with it being a collaborative project, one thing I, I remember from the book is that you, you talk about how uh, it includes non-academic viewpoints, which I'm guessing, of course, it would, because a lot of the people that would contribute to the portal website, they, they wouldn't perhaps have an academic background, but they would have a keen interest in archaeology. And I was just wondering, 
what what the reaction has been to the book in terms of it including these these sort of viewpoints because there are there are essays in the book that deal with they deal with the more sort of esoteric end of of archaeology some of them anyway and which I think is refreshing because it's you know archaeology is one of those things where you're sort of exploring the past and you're you're fascinated by these past societies do you when you were putting together the book did you was there a, a reaction from the more academic side of of the archaeology world well that was always the intention to make it an inclusive um process and an inclusive uh, uh, space to you know for, for different viewpoints and really I've, I've chose some of some of what I thought were the most interesting ones um, without I have to say laboring too much on on ley lines and such like which I think have had plenty of publicity in in past years so we kind of put ley lines to one side and thought well there are are actually lots of other alternative viewpoints and um, yeah that was the intention all of all in all uh, from the beginning oh yeah we were a bit a bit concerned how how the archaeologists would take it but they they've taken it amazingly and it's uh, obviously been been part of the success of the book i think mm, yes because there are articles in the book about the the phenomenology of sites and what sort of what they represent i mean from the information that's been put on the portal and from the the sites that are included in the book what what insights into the phenomenology of these places do you think has been gained through through the projects you've been involved with well yeah a lot of this goes back to um what you'd call earth mysteries magazines from the 80s and 90s things like the lay hunter and third stone and um northern earth all of which were talking about this sort of thing, as I say, in the 80s and 90s, and Northern Earth is still going and is, is an excellent read. And um, they really, a lot of that has been picked up through the, the 90s and 2000s, has, has been picked up or echoed in, in academic archaeology. So it was kind of looking at uh, uh, combining the two to give a, a, a sort of, yeah, what I think, Popular books on archaeology don't tend to cover this very much. They tend to, if anything, you know, they they, they tend to assume people are not maybe one not ready to take on this sort of stuff because there's a lot of um, quite heavy theoretical archaeology floating around, and they they kind of the approach was to is to try and um, make it accessible. So in terms of you know visiting a site to just open your mind to the to the way it's laid out and to the to, to different ways you might uh, it might approach it in terms of how the view view as you go as you get towards the site and how the site uh, you know impinges over a hill there's a, a great thing on them um, about you know we were walking the stone rows of Dartmoor and you get various monuments and various hills coming in and out of view as you walk along the stone row and it's 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 as if the builders I think this. I'll say this is the case. Is it the fifth of the builders were trying to make a point and trying to emphasise uh, sites, other sites in the landscape, and align to them. And uh, at times, you can see the uh, uh, that the see out out to sea. You know, you get you get a, a short little view of the of the sea, and then that goes again, and you you can see particular tours and, and that sort of thing. So I think there's, this is a, there's a, a much unexplored. A, unexplored area or ripe for more exploration by by the amateur as well really mm, yeah so 
I think what's interesting is that, uh, and I, what I really like is that there are some really interesting articles in the book about these kind of ideas, archaeoacoustics and, and archaeoastronomy. And, and one thing that is clear is that, and I think my, I think it's still sort of a misconception that some people might have is that sort of in terms of a culture's understanding of its world, there's, there might be this sort of misconception that a society progresses forward through time. But if you look back, I, I would argue that there are plenty of societies that from the past that, that probably had a, a more sort of innate understanding of their landscape than, than we do. Do you, do you think that with the, with the sites that you've been recorded on the portal and, and the articles that the book contains, do you, do you think that sort of exemplifies that idea that what, it's more a case that, that their world was, was just different? Yes, I mean, looking at archaeoastronomy, I mean, in the wintertime, if you're up at a stone circle, it, when it gets dark, your eyes are naturally drawn towards the sky just to, because it's dark. You know, they didn't obviously have artificial light and the, the nights were very long and much, much darker than they are now. And also uh, places like Thornborough Henge is it, or Thornborough Henges, the, the three of them in North Yorkshire are particularly interesting for this because they've got the huge banks, which and when you go inside the Henges, you're you're really in an enclosed space. It's um, sort of like an amphitheatre, and um, you you get enclosed. I suppose it's, it's a similar idea as, as at Stonehenge because in inside the circle. It's a, a different space, a different sort of it's marked, marked, marked off, demarcated off from the, the outside. And uh, I think going back to Thornborough, it kind of focuses you up towards the heavens, and they have t an en entrance at each side. So they have a like a a um, a, a site. So if you, if you imagine sighting along the banks, uh, you, you, along the entrances. Um, what our, what the um, archaeoastronomers did was uh, put it through the computer to calculate all the different um, risings and settings of various stars and planets and such like, and that they've got you know, various stars that are uh, certainly significant at particular times in the past, say 3000 BC, which is when, when we know Thornborough was in use. And you've got white stars like Sirius and this uh, that the banks at Thornborough would have been gleaming white from gypsum and they would have they I think they they were had um, various alignments of pits and curses and such like as well so that they were making alignments and they were they were decorating with very uh colorful well, not colorful but bright bright uh, white sort of um, as I say gypsum and such like and you can see this at other stone circles as well they, they, the people who built them seem to have like quartz and um bright you know white chalk and such like this this comes up again and again mm, yeah i mean one concept that i've heard about about this time like the late neolithic time when these sort of sites start to get built is that it's the point in time when communities they're stopping the hunter-gatherer lifestyle and they're settling down they're sort of starting families and it's a these structures are in part they're sort of statements in the landscape that the people are here is that something that you think is is accurate yeah i mean if you wind back even to i think it's 4000 bc in in kent so that's now 6000 years ago um there's when they were 
excavating for the the original high speed, so high speed one, the Ashford um, rail link. Mm. This is very close to a place called, well, it's uh, close to the Medway megaliths of um, Kitscote and um, and such like. And there's a a stone called the White Horse Stone, which you can look up on the megalithic portal or, or it's in the book. And close by to that, there's um, within a few hundred yards that they found this enormous wooden sort of hall structure. Um, and this is now that now this has been dated, it actually goes back to pre-agriculture. So really, you know, what we think of as settling down and farming, this is this is not really the kind of farming they were doing. They were kind mm. of um, maybe settling for a bit and, and doing the odd bit of growing the odd thing but they was they were still very um very mobile and very um you know attached to the land um and this is this is actually before they built the great megaliths even before they built the ones in kent so they were making these wooden great wooden halls um and again they don't seem to have been halls that people lived in because they were a bit more grand than that they seem to have had a sort of special purpose of um you know, some, I mean, the ideas of ancestors and putting, you know, using them for putting, the, you know, dead, the dead in and parts of, of dead bodies. I mean, you, you've probably know, know of the, the later long barrows like West Kennet and such mm. like. And also that, um, you know, they, you found various um, skulls and bits of separated out long bone and um so they, they weren't putting whole bodies in these things they were they were doing strange ceremonies and rituals and separating the bones out of and and um sort of making a making a making a big point of, of particular you know, particular ancestors that they were say revering or such like and so going back to this this house or this um this wooden wooden house you you've got a kind of it's very there's a lot of parallels with these great long barrows um they're very very long structures and they seem to have as i say been used for purposes other than just living in so that that there was there was very um organized sort of organized religion or organized um rituals that were connected with these i mean we can only only dream of what they were doing with these bones but um as I say, if you think of going in and into the dark and communing with the ancestors with these somewhat smelly bones, because also they would they would reopen the tombs and get the bones in and out and put new bodies in. So yeah, this was very much of an active uh, process for them, really. So sort of, yeah, communing with the dead. Because hmm. that's interesting. Because in East Asia, I think there are still cultures that will um, disinter loved ones at certain times of the year and sort of bring them back into the village and and sort of you know c- celebrate them it's it's not exactly the same but it's it's interesting that there's that 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 relationship between the living and the dead has existed for across the world for a long time <laughs> yeah and that's one thing the archaeologists do is is look at uh, different sort of anthropological ideas like this and the the uh, really the way where this idea of um defleshing bones came from is because you don't find any of the little tiny ear bones or you know the things that you would find from just letting a body decay naturally you can actually tell from excavating that they must have just gathered up certain bones and and plonked them down so that that this idea of well what were they doing that the idea they must have been defleshing them somewhere else and and you find wooden platforms or 
for four holes uh, in a square in you know, various um, locations. So you know, it's it's easy to think that, that this is a like a, a um, excarnation platform, as as you say, ideas from um, from other cultures. Um, and also, uh, of course, um, Mike Parker Pearson's gone gone all all out on this with his um, stones for the dead and um, wooden structures for the living, with uh, you know, ideas around Stonehenge and and Durrington. And I mean, this a lot of this was inspired by um, talking to you know um, archaeologists from Madagascar and, and other cultures and the sort of the cross cultural ideas. Yeah, so that he's he's taken that and run with it and come up with a lot of really interesting ideas. Mm, yeah. So the book shows that there are there, there are sites like this all across the British Isles. Is there evidence that, in terms of who built them, there might there might be connections that that cover quite a bit of distance? Well, there must have been. I mean, yes, you get these long barrows all over the country, and you know the ones in Orkney are very similar to the ones in Cornwall, and and the ones are all over, and you, you get them down down the west of Ireland, uh, I think people would have been traveling by sea. So mm. again, that's something that's not not recognized is they must have had pretty um, badass boats for, right. for, you know, able to transport cattle and, um, you know, tra travel long distances. But there, there's, there's simply no nothing left apart, uh, apart from the odd log boat, which is, you know, quite primitive. But yeah, I mean, they must have had boats of a, a, a equivalent uh, level of complexity to, to the Vikings and, and such like. It's just we've got no record of them. So, you know, they were they were very sophisticated people and they, they were very mobile and going going around trading and um yes, as I say, transporting transporting cattle on these boats and re, re uh you know in in, in colonizing new places and going from Shetland across to Norway and that sort of thing. So as I say much as the Vikings were only many thousands of years before and yeah they they were tra passing ideas and then this like this sort of cult of stone circles or whatever you want to call it came up where you know everyone started building stone circles and that they don't seem to have been around for well maybe for yeah no that's true they were around for for a long time so but this i this the, these ideas sort of spread and and it was like a, a sort of fashion thing and the you, you see the pottery you know, people copying the pottery styles and that sort of thing. And there's this going going over over from one place to another. Mm, that's a that's a good point you made because these sites, when you visit them, they seem. I mean, the stones are often so massive and they seem so permanent. You immediately imagine that this is how it's always been. It's always looked like this, and it's always been surrounded by this landscape. But at the time that a lot of these structures whatever they were for were being built the british isles were more heavily forested and the the whole landscape was different and the people were different and so it's in terms of trying to sort of appreciate why they were built and what they were for it's it can be quite difficult because kind of, the modern world is is so different and the, the way we understand the needs of a society are, are, are different as well so you sort of have to try your best to imagine as different a world as possible <laughs> Yeah, I think one thing to to think about is that at the time these were built, we weren't long out of an ice age, and there mm. were a lot of um, glacial erratics lying about, huge stones in the landscape, just lying about. And I think um, you know the interest in stones would have started from maybe the tours on Dartmoor um, and uh, revering particular rocks and starting to 
actually you know, make your own mark on the landscape. Um, and Salisbury Plain would have been covered in erratics as well. So this this comes back to I mean I'm a I think I'm a you know a, a, quite a proponent for the the old um, glacial erratic idea of the blue stones and that this business of carrying them from Wales all that seems awfully lot of effort when there were were really stones all over the landscape and it's, it could well be they managed to pick them up from all over because I mean they, everything's been tidied these days but really in, in you know those times as you say a lot more trees but they were they were cut they a lot of the trees had been cut down um but and they were gathering up the stones for you know erecting their monuments mm, and I, I guess with that argument around stonehenge as well another thing is that it's hard to get into the mindset of those people isn't it exactly why they did the things that they did I mean, I guess, I guess ultimately, you know, it's not to say that Neolithic people weren't practical and would rather not move stones massive amounts of distance. But I suppose as well, um, you know, that that world is very different, and and it can be hard to get into the mind of someone from such a long time ago. Yeah, I think what we what we see with stone circles is people competing with each other and vying for the most impressive monument and kind of. You know, it's like like someone's car today. You know, if someone mm. wants a similar car but better, on or, or, or you know, chiefs going. You know, it's a kind of precursor to chiefs zip, zooming around in chariots. They they would have their own, um, you know, impressive monument. And and as I say, stone circles for presumably for gathering and trading at and and stuff and such like. But yeah, the people. I think, and and it seems like after they built their own local stone circles, they all gathered together to come to Stonehenge to build build one socking great one. It seems that many different tribes and cultures collaborated to, to build that and it was a you know a, a very much a collaborative idea from different people coming together. So what what caused that to happen we don't know. Maybe it does seem to be connected with with the climate getting more dodgy towards the end of end of the time. So perhaps they were they were appealing with this incredible monument, appealing to the gods to come together to to try and um, you know change the you know cha- change the, the improve their harvests or such like. Because mm, I mean, a lot of these sites they are aligned with the sun or, or the moon, aren't they? Yeah. Yes, and you do see that. Yes, in many many places. Yes. And what's the current thinking around why the people were doing that? Well, it, yes, coming back to harvest, I mean, obviously people are interested in midwinter because it's kind of the sun's died and you know, the, the, then you're mm. celebrating the, the turning of the year so that the sun is comes back and you look forward to planting and such like. And similarly, at midsummer, you're, getting a little bit of a breather before you you get the, the harvest um coming in so yeah i mean it's connected to the cycles of the year and um you know people were reliant on their harvest and as you say it, it, it's it was a if the harvest failed it was a big deal so you know they, there was a lot of um ceremony and magic no doubt involved in uh, making sure these things were successful yeah i mean yeah. Clearly, these people they had a more they had to have a more sort of intimate relationship with the with their landscape, didn't they? And it feels like these structures were they're they're a form well they are technology, aren't they? They're a form of technology in order to help them understand yeah. their world. 
a little better or at least try and predict when something might happen or when when to harvest and when to plant and, and things like that but also I, I was reading an article in the book about Stonehenge and they were talking about how it seems to be commemorating a sort of a marriage between the sun and the land so there's a point at which the light from the sun almost seems to sort of penetrate the earth and that's one interpretation of Stonehenge or a period of Stonehenge's uh, operation. Yeah that's that's something something Terence Meaden's done a lot of work on and um, we also have found other people with um, ideas of casting shadows and uh, commemorating you know alignments of of stones with with shadows and with with the sun and um, as I say yes Terence has has got a lot of ideas about particular stones being illuminated by particular at particular times of year and um, you know, symbols, symbolism through this, and um, yes, male, male and female stones and such like. And um, there's a lot more to, there's a lot of symbolism mm. involved because ultimately if you want to just plot the angles of stars and um, suns and uh, sunrises and stuff, you can just do it with posts. So clearly they were they were commemorating and, and memorialising this sort of stuff in a big way by, by putting up these uh, stone monuments. So although they were, you know, had probably had, had these practical, must have had these practical purposes, they, they were, you know, uh, commemorating and memorialising. And as you know, as you do with a gravestone, it's like a, a stone memorial, really. Hmm. And I think today we can sort of compartmentalise the reasons for something existing, whereas I get the impression that these sorts of sites, they had a, they had a number of functions, so not just one. Yeah, I think they must have done, because as I said, we've got the, well, there's the, there's the obvious burial aspect, but then you get parish churches which have burials in, and yet you know, churches are burials are not the main reason churches exist. So in a similar way, they, the burials were probably, you know, a, a related related to other things that were going on. But at stone stone circles, you don't tend to find burials at all. So it seems like they were doing that elsewhere, and that stone circles were purely meeting places um, and probably trading places. Because again, you don't find you know we see feasting and such activities elsewhere but you don't see them at, at stone circles you actually see very little evidence of anything going on at stone circles so it's really yeah as i say meeting up at particular times of year and um uh, things that haven't haven't left a particularly you know long mark hmm yeah it's it's very interesting Something else that is mentioned in the book and is discussed is uh, archaeoacoustics, which I found really interesting. And the idea that some of these places were built with that in mind. Um, do you think that that area of research is something that in, is indicated in these sites? I mean, in terms of why they were built, do you think some of them had a purpose where they were built to sort of... Because in the, in the article, they were talking about how... it the acoustics could be used as part of an initiation experience. And I think it was in what was thought to be a sort of a, a burial chamber, but yeah. it might actually not be that. It might be a structure designed for an initiation. Yeah, I mean, they, they do. Again, you're looking at West Kennet and similar barrows. They've got these different chambers and the different chambers can be made to resonate at um, kind of a, a low um you know, ad- adult male voice type frequencies, so and they're perfect for chanting and, and didgeridoo playing and all, all that sort of thing, as uh, many people have um, have have do do to this day. 
And um, mm. the idea, uh, Steve Marshall's um, idea he's come up with, he wrote the, that bit for us and he's looked at in his, his book on Avebury is actually using a bull roarer to made of flints because um, coming back to, I mean, these flints that you find all over everywhere, they seem to be many more of them than were, and many they, they don't seem all that practical. So the idea he had is that you glue all these flints together with a bit of tar onto, onto uh, a bit of twine that you've made. And, and if you twirl it round, the, the actual stone, uh, you know, the, the little bits of stone twirling around make an incredible bull roarer sound. It's like a roar. And um, he, he's demonstrated he demonstrated this at, at the Megalithomania conference um, when uh, in in last uh, March in May rather and um, yeah the idea is that you can twirl a bull roar to, to get a really big resonance going because I mean that's always been the problem with these ideas of you know you can put a speaker and a sound source in there and you can theorize oh yeah this is a resonance but how how are they actually generating these sounds because obviously they didn't have um, sound systems so um yeah this idea of the whirling the bull roarer does just create these deep and um really creepy noises and if you're in the chamber when someone's doing that you you do get a i mean the speculation you can sort of create out of body experiences and um altered states of consciousness and as i say go you know things of uh, ideas of from other cultures and such like of similar things of maybe this was going on yeah yeah because i mean it is generally thought that these cultures did have that aspect to their religion didn't they would i mean the, the, the term would be sort of uh, like a shamanic experience when they there would be somebody in the community who would be the sort of the the go-between between the people and the, the gods that they that they worshipped or or part of their theology um and so yeah something like this would in a way it would it would make sense wouldn't it to have to have that sort of technology to instigate that experience it, it would it would make sense from from that viewpoint yes because we've um you know found particular pe- people with particular special powers as it were because if you think of um you know, creating fire, knowing how to, to light fire, knowing how to create, I mean, in, in moving on to sort of Bronze Age times, knowing how to create a metal and forge metal and such like you, They had sort of specialities and um, people with special knowledge and special skills that were passed on and may, you know, maybe kept secret and um, you know, initiated, you had to be initiated to find out how this sort of thing worked. So clearly they had you know, people with special powers and that, and, and that yeah, that must have, must have been a religious aspect aspect to it as well and, and another connected thing is um is with uh flint mining um because mm. people were yeah you know, there were a lot of you know it's it's not true to say that you have to mine deep down into the ground to get good flint because you know in the, in those days there was a lot a lot more stones around as, as we said so this idea of flint mining seems to have been another kind of um fashionable thing or a thing that they did as a, as a ritual or a, a, a ceremonial thing to, to dig dig down into the ground like you've got at Grimes Graves and um, other various places deep down into the dark you know depths and and you know obviously they didn't have much in the way of, of light and they they did seem to this idea of getting flint out seems to have been um, connected with 
some sort of supernatural or some sort of otherworldly experience so that, that you know they didn't have to do this again this was a sort of fashion thing that everyone's sort of started going digging for flint in this in this um way that's really interesting as well, I mean, you were talking earlier about those henges at Thornbird that were sort of lined with gypsum. So, I mean, I imagine that would take a lot of mining too, wouldn't it? There could be a practical side to it as well. Yeah, yeah, and, and setting that sort of thing up. And um, the other thing that uh, talking about the these earth earth um, houses, what what's been found in a number of places is. Um, chalk carvings little chalk squares and chalk chalk um inscribed with uh, marks and scratches and um diamonds and that sort of thing that these seem to have been integral to various things on also up at ness of brodgar where there's been excavations going on for you know years and years they they found these that are inscribed stones which have been put in you know hidden almost and you you get monuments where they've reused uh artwork as it were which has been in actually hidden from view so this the same this idea of you know making making inscriptions and hiding them in in so where people don't see them and this sort of thing there's other things like that going on so that there were clearly sort of secret you know secret um rites and rituals going on that were not other people were not meant to know about mm, yeah definitely it, on that theme that one article I mean, I loved all the articles that I've read so far in the book, <laughs> um, but yeah, one that really, you. one that really interested me, and it was something that was talked about. I didn't go to Megalithomania this year, but I went in 2018, and it was about um, little carved stone balls that they found in Aberdeenshire, and I, I just found that talk fascinating. And in in the book, Julie Kearney writes a little article about it, and it's just that this, those little balls are just so interesting. Yes, and also there were various sized ones have been found in in different contexts. Like in um, Ireland, those little tiny marble sized ones were found in the, the tomb of Nauth, and they they must have they I think they must have been known about this these this same style of of carving where you um, you know carve these sort of circular grooves around the side, um, and that you find these all over. As I say, this this must have been another kind of fashion type thing or another thing that you know, people latched onto as as something to do and and they they very much seem to be something that you'd hold in your hand they they're very mm. tactile things uh so you know th- imagining things with may- maybe they were involved with talking or with passing from one person to another like a sort of talking stick or some things in, involving handling them or you know we can only only imagine but that there does yeah that there seem to be a definite sort of uh, as i say idea of this this particular thing being a thing of being people building these these carving these balls and then then um, discarding them again and afterwards mm. i have to admit my, my own personal theory um, when i was looking at the the pictures of them some of them really remind me of um, of pollen oh yeah, yeah so i thought I had, I had this idea that they would carve Somehow they would know they would know the pollen of of the plant that they wanted, and they would carve the pollen, and they would bury that in the ground, and as a, like as a sort of an act of sympathetic magic, or almost. And I mean that that's my I mean that's more towards the out there <laughs> theories, yeah. I think. But but they they just visually they really reminded me of of when you look at pollen under a sort of electron microscope, it was 
the the similarity just it, it struck me but but yeah i mean yeah I mean, I mean they're very geometric things so they were they they show sort of understanding of geometry and that sort of thing yeah but yeah they, i mean it's, it's just another fascinating aspect to yeah to this culture that yeah, I mean, it goes on forever. You can, yeah, can, yeah, thinking of th- what people must have been think, thinking and mm. dreaming of. And yes, it's kind of the, the appeal of the whole subject is you can, you can, it's kind of never ending for our ideas and, and such like that. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to sort of the more esoteric theories about these sites and the people that built them and, and lived near them, is, is there something that's a particular favourite of yours? Uh, well, I think just the just the, the astronomy ideas and our ideas of um, connecting with the heavens and such like, and um, yeah, really, I'm not a great one for ley lines, I have to say. So, so um, mm. maybe, but um, yeah, as I say, just being interested in interested in the stars and having stories, presumably about all that that sort of thing. And um, yeah, one thing I always think about is that the night sky must have been so incredible back then i mean we, we still have it in we still have it around in the modern world yeah. but you have to go into the into the atlas mountains or deep into a forest over here you can go to kilda forest i think and you get like a proper night sky but the night sky in general you know six thousand years ago must have been so incredible yeah and storytelling and that sort of thing that was a, that must have been a great culture of storytelling because obviously they didn't have writing so they they mm. were memori- memorizing things and they must have had a, had a cult uh, they must have had a spoken culture of presumably rhymes and songs and things to, to help to remember things um yeah. quite a lot of, of ideas relating to that as to how and again with um quotes primitive cultures around the world who don't have writing and how, how they uh memorialize things and again the, the australian aborigines kind of have, have stories built into the landscape into different um sites and each particular place has a is a sort of continuation of the story isn't it and things like that that that, that being being connected to a, a great story so i think there were things like that going on as well yeah yeah and it's, it's hard to imagine i mean everyone can that has a story that they know off by heart and on a good night out you'll be able to just just talk with however you want with your friends and about things that you remember doing or just a funny thing that happened to you you can so everyone human beings are still primed to tell stories but a lot of the time like a a long story will be sort of we, we can we contain them in books now don't we we can go back to the book and pick it up again and but like you were saying the cultures that we're discussing here they would have had a, a, a verbal storytelling tradition wouldn't they, they were, and and uh, the, the the memorizing of those stories would it must have affected their understanding of reality their reality it, it would it must have shaped their reality somewhat i think to to live with these stories all the time and and, and and to have that tradition and, and and that way of hearing stories and telling them. Yeah, and I mean, we know they were communicating over great distances, so they must have been remembering things to pass on as they as they went as they went on. Yes, so they must have had ways of um, memorizing and keeping things, um, you know, not losing the track of the story or not or not losing the meaning. Yeah, and as well, I mean. I mean, these sites have continued to inspire stories, haven't they? I mean, I, I think a lot of the sites in the book they have names that the names that we have for um, these sites probably weren't the, <laughs> weren't, weren't the names that they were given originally. Lots of the, lots of them have been reinterpreted, haven't they? Um, a, a lot of the names of these sites will kind of be connected to legends about giants and dragons and all sorts of things. So they've they've continued to have that effect on on people. 
Yeah, and stones going down at midnight to drink from the stream is another common one. So, and think things like stones becoming animated. Mm. Um, that's a that's a, a really interesting idea of uh, stones representing people or representing you know, people turned to stone and have, yes. having a sort of an, animist animism type religion of um, you know people thinking of these as. as sentient beings and, and if you like and that, that's a that, i think that's a quite a ripe path for you know for research yeah definitely i mean i you're right the, 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 a lot of the stone circles are is it the one called nine maidens i think yeah. says that um and it's fast fascinating i mean i love stories like that i'm very into that idea if you, if you, if you, mm. if you told me that a stone circle used to be i know some people and then something happened and something went wrong and they got turned into stone. Like, okay, I, I like that story and it's a, it's a nice explanation for <laughs> why why it's here. Yeah, and it comes up a lot. It's all, all over. You get the same stories. Yes. Yeah, sort of a, a cautionary tale, I think. Because mm. I um I was talking to somebody a few episodes back who she, she she's studying uh, for a degree in, in Celtic studies and we were talking about the the Mabinogion and the books that make that up and. And an idea we were sort of passing between us is that these stories that in this in this book were sort of they were stories that were collated by the the civil servant equivalents of early medieval Wales, and they were sort of the, these stories that would be told to sort of keep the ruling powers in check. So they were always cautionary tales about some, somebody quite powerful who made a mistake and and it went horribly wrong. And and we were sort of spitballing the idea that perhaps that these stories had that quality to them. Like, yeah. you know, well, don't do this because you know you'll you'll incur the wrath of a of a giant or a dragon. And maybe maybe the I like the idea that the the stone circles. Mm. I mean, I'm not against the idea that they are people who were turned into stone, but I I can understand how the the story of people being turned into stone because they impinge on some sort of law or, or rule or did something wrong can it can be an impressive way of, of getting a point across, can't it? Yeah, and um, you know, these the societies had a, had certainly had a way of um, getting people to to get involved in building some a site like Silbury Hill, which has take you know, takes mm. so many thousands of um, yeah, hours of of labour of you know, constructing, and was done by many generations of people, and uh, I think. That's probably a reason that some of these, again, stone rows in in Dartmoor and, and bits of Stonehenge and uh, why they're not as regular as they could be, I think, because they were continued by in years and ge even generations of people coming back year after year to add on to the monument. So it being a, a sort of living thing that you add on to, uh, almost as, as important as the finished monument is the sort of act, act of constructing it and getting everyone together and, um, you know, uh, not coer coercing, probably being the wrong word, but persuading people to come and come and mm -hmm. gather and work on, on this sort of thing with, with, you know, huge amounts of effort that were, were required. It was, it was key to the whole thing, really. Hmm, it's interesting. I wonder if the people that built these sites, I wonder if they knew that 6,000 years later, they'd still be around. It's, yeah, it's an, I like to think that they it's would. an amazing thought, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's certainly what, you know, they must have had an eye to the future. Yeah, but maybe probably not quite so far. But yeah, it's, it's an amazing thought, isn't it? Yeah. One one last thing I wanted to talk about is that one some of the sites that really impressed me in, in terms of the effort were the the dolmen sites um the, especially the capstones some of the capstones on those sites are i mean the, the weight of them is is incredible yes 
Um, do you want a little bit from the book? Because this is this is what I normally normally start oh, yeah. my talks with. So I've got I've got a particularly good bit here. So um, let's um, cool. Let's just find a house. So this is this is by Vicky Cummings, who's our who was our archaeology consultant. This is uh, this is writing about dolmens, which is one of her sort of expert um, areas. So. Dolmens are early Neolithic stone monuments where the main focus appears to have been on lifting up and display of a large capstone. They were sometimes used for the deposition of the dead, but this does not seem to have been their primary function. Instead, the builders of these sites seem to have wanted to demonstrate their prowess at raising and supporting massive stones. These sites have capstones that are far in excess of the size required simply to create a stone box for burial. The largest dolmen, Browns Hill in County Carlow in Ireland, has a capstone that weighs over a 100 tonnes. Most dolmens have their capstone supported by just three uprights. This creates an amazing effect, an enormous stone seemingly almost floating in the sky. Because the stone chosen as the capstone was often a thick and chunky object, the effect of a massive stone lifted up in the air is further enhanced. This was almost certainly deliberate on the part of the builders. Likewise, the stones used to support the capstone are often thin and slender, with just the very smallest part possible touching the underside of the capstone. Again, this was surely deliberate, done to enhance the effect of lifting up a large stone. It's hard to imagine how people with only Stone Age technology were able to lift up such massive stones. And visitors to these sites today often express amazement. And I think this is exactly what the builders intended, because people in those days had very little experience of built architecture. And these dolmens appeared all the more incredible in prehistory. So there you go. Uh, uh, I, I love the idea of one-upmanship. That still <laughs> went back. That went back thousands oh, of years. So, <laughs> and, and, and when I do my talk, the next bit I go on and show after that is um, these uh, stones that have have been found um, by David Shepherd and other other people um, in North Yorkshire, where you've got a, a stone which is kind of not a natural stone for the area, and it, it's kind of been propped, and it, it seems to have been put there and and the the idea is that this was kind of a, a demonstration demonstration of prowess and of um it's almost like a circus act in in balancing this thing and and creating a creating mm. a uh, it was almost like a performance art in in putting it there again as they say the actual act of creating it maybe being equally as important as the, the thing that was left behind and yeah, as you say being being a an impre- a demonstration of prowess and maybe challenging people to come up with something better. I mean, that's always how kind of how we've we've sort of developed. I think there was a, 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 a an element of one-upmanship, really. Yes. <laughs> yeah, like a, a, a strongman competition, a combination of that as well. Like, a, yeah, like a, who's the strongest? Who can lift the biggest stone onto yeah. these? Yeah, I, I I love that idea. It's just it's just funny to imagine because you, you can you can sort of romanticize. Uh, Neolithic and Bronze Age people is a little bit, can't you? And and forget that they're human beings with you know, who have the same thoughts and desires as everybody else. <laughs> yeah, I think there was a, there was a lot of um, 
because uh, everyone had their own dol- dolmen, and as I say, that it seemed to be another a fa- another fashion thing, which it seems to have swept through with these different ideas through the through the centuries of different things that it was the you know, the latest thing to to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, cool. Well, Andy, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. It's been great. Thank you. I, I love the book. I recommend it to anybody who's got an interest in archaeology. And just be- as we're finishing up, just if people want to find book and the megalithic portal how do they do that so well yes the megalithic portal is www.megalithic.co.uk or just a search for megalithic portal will will get you there and the book is in still fingers crossed in all good bookshops and waterstones and such like so yes Mm -hmm. um, thank you very much for the recommendation Uh, you're very welcome congratulations on the book as well It's, it's it's fantastic thank you cool well yeah thanks andy Cheers. It's been a little while since we discussed archaeology here at Sphere HQ, and I was really happy when Andy agreed to be interviewed. The Old Stones is a fantastic book, and I must have for anyone interested in ancient Britain. I love how it originated all those years ago with Andy starting the online database, and how that evolved into the Megalithic Portal website, somewhere for people who are really interested in this stuff to record the sites they find and share theories on what they might represent, and who built them. Without all that hard work, I'm not sure the book would even exist, and that would be a massive shame. Often archaeology can be presented in an overly academic manner, that excludes some of the more fringe ideas and esoteric theories, so it's great that the Old Stones book includes articles that speculate on these areas, and offers a tantalising glimpse into the distant past. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, Please rate, review and subscribe on your favourite podcatcher, as it all really helps. To contact me here at Sphere HQ, email someothersphere at gmail.com. And the podcast Twitter account is at spherical underscore pod. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, thank you very much for listening.